Welcome to episode 43, The Bright and Morning Star, Finding and Following Jesus in the Book of Revelation. And now we have a special announcement. Breck's new book, based on this podcast series, has just been published. It's called The Bright and Morning Star, Finding and Following Jesus Through the Book of Revelation. You know, most people are baffled by the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. The symbolism is totally mysterious. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to tell what's going on in Revelation. Scholars have argued about its meaning and, you know, for centuries, and there are so many conflicting interpretations of the Apostle John's visions, but Latter-day Saints have a unique take on the book of Revelation that the rest of the world doesn't have. And if we study it through the lens of the temple, the fog starts to clear up. So I've written this book, The Bright and Morning Star, and it views Revelation through that lens of the temple. It shows how to read Revelation as a guide through the sacred ordinances of the temple, from the initiatories all the way through to the ceiling and uh, the ultimate entry into the Lord's presence. Can you explain the title for us, The Bright and Morning Star? Well, that's one of the names of Jesus in the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star, meaning that um, he is the source of light and hope, and that's what Revelation, the book of Revelation, is all about. You can find the book easily on Amazon.com. Just type in the name Breck England, or the title, The Bright and Morning Star, and put in your order. I've actually ordered five this week. It's available in paperback or Kindle. If you like the book, make sure that you leave a review on Amazon. And if not, uh, you don't need to leave a review. <laughs> you don't need to. <laughs> we don't want that. Please reviews. don't. Yeah, yeah, just don't really. Yeah, just forget the yeah, whole thing. Yeah. Throw the book across the room and forget the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Today's episode is entitled The Last Judgment. <laughs> in the spirit of Halloween in October. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm just really excited about this. Yeah. I'm Sam Bracken, your host, and our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who is helping us understand the book of Revelation through the lens of the temple. We are now in chapter 20 of Revelation. After the battle of Gog and Magog, the world scene changes. Now what? Can you say Gog and Magog again? Yeah. I just love that. Yeah. I'm going to say it with this sound effect. Yeah. Please. Gog and Magog. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> ah, I love it. Now what? All right. The battle is won, and the scene changes back to the heavenly temple, right? John says this, quote, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. That's Revelation 20, verse 11. So John, our, our seer, right, he is observing the highest point conceivable in all the universe, and that is the, the great white throne. This is the throne of God, right? The central divine throne at the center of the cosmic circle, the eternal round of Father's course. Now, in John's time, the Greeks pictured the throne of God at the pole star, what we call, um, you know, the North Star. And it was located in a constellation they called Thronos. We don't call it that today. We call it the Little Dipper. They called the North Star 
the nail of heaven, which I think is a striking symbol of the atonement. Mm. Now, what they saw when they looked up in heaven, they saw, they knew that the, st- that the stars, the heavens, circled every night. They could see the circling. And that they circled around a central point, right? Mm-hmm. Which we call the North Star. Now, they saw that too. So they, call, they called it the nail of heaven because mm. it was like God pounded a nail in and the entire universe kind of hangs from that nail. Yeah. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, it does. Totally. So the yeah. nail of heaven. Also called in the Old Testament, the nail in the sure place, which is, I think, an interesting phrase. Striking symbol of the atonement. By the way, in John's time, the North Star was, was a different star. It was not Polaris. It was a star called Kohab, which is an interesting word. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is the, called the precession of the, of the equinoxes. The, the Earth doesn't stay in one place in its orbit. It, it wobbles. It moves ever so slowly away from, from its position from 2,000 years ago. We're not in that same position mm-hmm. today. So for us, the North Star is called Polaris. For them, it was called Kokab. It was a different star. Okay. The Romans called the North Star the Thronus Caesaris, or the throne of Caesar, the throne of the heavenly god Caesar, which was above the North Pole. The Jews also saw God's throne in the sky, and they, and they also saw 24 elders enthroned around it. So the idea was that God reigns from this fixed central position in the heavens, quote, upon his throne in the bosom of eternity, in the midst of all things, unquote. That's from Doctrine and Covenants 88, 13. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression. And so, anyway, here we are before the throne. Now the last judgment begins. Could you read Revelation 20, verse 12? And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. Okay, so we're back where we started, in the great throne room or council room of the heavenly temple. By this point, all the children of God, who were once morning stars singing together, right, have passed through mortality and they come full circle back to the council chamber where it all began. So everybody will be there. Everybody. Verse 13 says, quote, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. So it's everybody. Now, the immense redemptive work of the millennium will be concluded by then. So everything is done, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Every single soul has been given the chance to accept or reject Jesus Christ and his atonement. And many of them, maybe most, I hope it's most, I believe it will be most, will have accepted the gospel and the ordinances of salvation either in person or by proxy. But on the other hand, some will consciously, deliberately refuse those saving graces. Regardless of that, we will all fully understand the consequences of the choices we've made. Okay? That's only fair. In, in John's model of salvation, um, this is what Draper and Rhodes have to say, quote, 
Only after Michael defeats Satan does the final judgment commence. With the blindness of the satanic delusion gone, all men and women will stand to face Christ. Unquote. There will be no prospect of excusing ourselves right at the universal resurrection. Now, 2 Nephi 19, uh, verses 13 through 14, says this, quote, We shall have a perfect knowledge of all our guilt and our uncleanness and our nakedness, and the righteous shall have a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment and their righteousness, being clothed with purity, yea, even with the robe of righteousness. Now, that is clearly a temple reference. Yeah, right. right. The robe, the symbol of the robe, when you put on the robe in the temple, think, this is the symbol of my purity, my righteousness. Originally, it was a robe covered with stains and grease and blood and because we are messed up humans, mortal. Mm-hmm. We're messed up mortals. Mm-hmm. But Jesus cleaned it, right? This is what we have to remember. It's not the robe of, hey, look at me, I'm righteous, I'm pure. It's the robe that says, you can look at me if you want because Jesus cleaned it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as far as knowledge is concerned, since um, perfect knowledge means complete knowledge, we will all know how we finished this mortal test, right? And apparently no body will need to tell us the outcome okay we will know the outcome oh yeah we won't be sitting there waiting for the jury to decide whether we're guilty or innocent we will know Mm -hmm. we don't need a jury to tell us that okay it says the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life what are all these books about yeah well the does the 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 doctrine covenants explains it section 128 7 These are the books which contain the record of their works and refer to the records which are kept on earth. Okay? Mm -hmm. So these are sort of the records of the church, the records that are kept, maybe the records that are kept in other places. There's also another book called the Book of Life, and that is kept in heaven. That's the record kept in heaven, according to DNC 128. Now it says... Quote, the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, unquote. Now, the books that were kept on earth, they contain the stories of our lives, right? Mm-hmm. There's an apocryphal book called the Book of Third Enoch, which was dug up out of the, out of the desert not long ago. And Enoch is called as a scribe. He's commanded to write everything to the generations of eternity, it says. Says that Enoch records everyone's works in 366 books. Wow. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, number. It sounds like the number of days in a leap year. Yeah. I'm not sure why that's such an important number. And he also visits Enoch, that is, he also visits the spirit prison and documents all those who have been condemned by the judge and all their sentences and their corresponding deeds. I have set down the achievements of each person in those writings, Enoch says, and no one can hide himself who was born on the earth, nor can his achievement be kept secret. So that's what Enoch, the book of Enoch says. Another apocryphal book called The Testament of Abraham says that the record of Enoch 
is enormous. Six cubits thick and 10 cubits wide, which is a brick uh, that has 15 feet high and nine feet across. So, <laughs> so that's a big, big book. Wow. wow. That's a big book. Yeah. So my whole life is there. That could be embarrassing. I, as, as you were talking about this, I'm like, all the times where I wasn't completely honest and maybe did some things that I'm not proud of. Well, that could be embarrassing, but not as embarrassing as my life, okay? <laughs> all right. I don't know about that. Yeah. But. Actually, there's more than just your life that's in the books. This is, this is even more scary. The books also track all the consequences of your works which means uh, how your actions affected other people. Uh-oh. Well, I, I feel better about that now. You do? For me, I do, because I think I've, I've honestly tried to help as many people as I can in my life, but I've also made a lot of mistakes, right? So, boy, um, that's... I'm glad that you're happy. I'm happier. <laughs> Let's say that. I'm not... Again, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I, I've done things negatively. I believe, I believe what you say, and, and knowing you as well as I do, I do believe that is true, that you've... The consequences of your life have been amazingly wonderful. I personally remember things where I really hurt people. Yeah, I remember that and, too. And um, how that may have affected the future. Mm. I also think of my children. Where did I mess up? What what consequences of that? I think I think of that a lot. Yeah, but yeah. then but then think about p people who really do mess up. And the consequences of, think about, for example, a friend of mine who decided to leave the church and leave the gospel behind. And he has a family of children and they are uh, aimless. They're just kind of floating along through life without any purpose. They're finding their purpose in drug addiction, in waste of wasteful living, in crime. In yeah. some cases, they are um, in jail. Yeah, those are the kind of people I and, was to raise me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I look at them and I think um, the consequences of your choices are going to reverberate for generations. Yeah, they do. They do. You know, if I start uh, criticizing the prophet in front of my children, for example, well, what are they going to grow up to do? They may take it even further right. and say, well, the prophet is wrong about everything. And, right. and what will happen with their family? And pretty soon you end up with generations of people who are unfaithful and who struggle and suffer when they don't need to. Book of, of Jubilees, uh, verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 20, says this. Jubilees, by the way, is a, a different version of Genesis uh, written by um, an ancient Jewish sources. We're not sure who wrote them. but Book of Jubilees 30, verse 20 says, quote, We will remember for a thousand generations the righteousness which a man did during his life. And it will be written on high, and it will come to him and his descendants after him. And he will be written down as a friend and a righteous one in the heavenly tablets, unquote. Or not, right? <laughs> Depending on the effects he's had on other people. That's why we should never say our life is our own, especially if we are a parent. Our life affects the lives of now think about this in 200 years how many descendants might you have it could be in the thousands yeah right? it could be so what you do today affects the lives of thousands to come yeah you know that's that's pretty profound 
pretty profound thing you just shared with us. So it makes you contemplate. What about things that we've really repented of? Well, the Lord does say, quote, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. So that's Doctrine and Covenants 58, 42. So I assume that, that all that we've repented of will be erased from the books. That's pretty good news. That is good news. I find myself on my knees a lot (laughs) these days asking for forgiveness. Yes, please erase that. Yeah, Um, please. Can we rewind and tape over that? You know, okay. If I could fill my life with enough good works, um, I know I'm not going to earn my way to heaven, but I sure want to help myself out and my my posterity. Right, so that's very good news. No kidding. We will also be judged by the covenants we've made, uh, whether we've kept them or not. And the covenants are contained in the books, right? The Bible is one such book. The record of the Jews, according to Nephi, he says the record of the Jews contains the covenants of the Lord. So we'll be judged by that, by the Bible. And that is what they call, uh, Jews call the divine ketubah, right? You remember what a ketubah is? Yeah, it's marriage contract. Yeah. Right. According to a really important New Testament scholar named, and this is a great name, J. Massingbird Ford. I love this guy's name. name. (laughs) The covenants govern, quote, he says this, the covenants govern the nuptial relationships of the Lamb embedded in the Sinai Exodus motif, which runs through the apocalypse. The giving of the covenant on Mount Sinai was known as the day of espousal, unquote. That means it it was a wedding. Mm, yeah. The wedding between God and the people of Israel. And if you abide by the covenant, enter the covenant, abide by it, you are of the house of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone's going to be examined to see how they have kept the terms of the ketubah or the marriage covenant of the Lamb. What about the book of life? What's that all about? Joseph Smith explained that. He explained the book of life when he was giving a talk in July of 1843 in Nauvoo. He said, quote, the book of life is a record of the saving ordinances performed in the temple, okay? In the power of the priesthood by the revelation of Jesus Christ, wherein it is granted that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Close quote. It doesn't matter whether, and this Joseph goes on to say this, it doesn't matter whether they themselves have attended to the ordinances in their own proper person or by the means of their own agents, unquote. So the book of life is, the, is like the records uh, of the church. Yeah, well, um, maybe more specifically, it's the records of the temple. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, in Greek times and Roman times, they used to keep citizenship lists to make sure you were a genuine citizen of the empire. And that was a big honor to be a citizen of Rome. Okay. So the book of life is a citizenship list of the righteous in the heavenly Jerusalem. These are the ones in white robes they overcame by faith. And their names must be found in a written genealogy, a family register, Right, which begins with Adam. The book of life lists those who accept the ordinances of salvation, whether in their own person or by proxy. And Joseph Smith said this, quote, We will fill the books with ordinances in anticipation that the day will come when the prison will release into the kingdoms of glory 
the believing, the repentant, and those who bow the knee. We will see the sufferings of hell end for all who choose to end them. Now, it's very interesting mm, to me, that, interesting. that phrase. Yeah. These people who are redeemed, according to Moroni 8, uh, they will be filled with charity. And um, that charity, will they will have developed it with the help of the Lord, this greatest of all eternal virtues, right? Charity. The pure love of Christ. The opposite of covetousness, okay? Which is the prime attribute of God himself, charity, according to Moroni 7. The saints develop charity, how? Through living their covenants, Mm-hmm. Through living the law of consecration in particular. Right. Charity is at the center of the covenant of consecration. In the book of Jubilees, the patriarch Isaac, this is um, chapter 36, verse 7 of Jubilees. This is an interesting story that's not in the Bible. The patriarch Isaac asks his sons, he had two sons, remember, Jacob and Esau. Esau. Right. He asks his sons, quote, to swear by the great oath that each one will love his brother with compassion and righteousness all the days of your lives, so that you will prosper in all your deeds and not be destroyed. And if either of you seeks evil against his brother, he will be wiped out from the book of the discipline of mankind, and he will not be written on high in the book of life. Wow. It's a beautiful Beautiful passage. Right. Your name's taken off the records of the temple. Sounds yeah, like. Unless you love your brother. Yeah. To be a temple-going Mormon doesn't do you any good if you hate much people. If you hate if your you brother. If you right. don't love your brother. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's interesting. Um, and if either of you seeks evil against his brother, you'll be wiped off. You'll be erased out of the book of life. So it's essential. So all those, all the endowment, all those gifts that you get will be made null yes. if you seek evil. Right, against your brother. If you uh, yeah. if you hate your brother, this is all just pointless. Totally pointless. Yeah. The great the two great commandments, to love God, love your neighbor, yeah, right. love your brother, love people, have charity. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to me that this story about Jake Isaac and his sons is uh, about the family, right? Yeah, yeah. So to be removed from the book of life, is essentially to lose your family. Oh, wow. To have no place in the great circle of the eternal family. Think about that. Yeah. So those those who refuse the bond of charity. This is an interesting passage in the New Testament. A lot of people kind of pass over. It's in the book of Jude, an interesting little book. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, those who refuse the bond of charity run greedily after error. They are stars wandering in the darkness forever. Uh, It's just a fascinating passage because here again is that astronomical symbolism, right? That that, uh, the children of God, the symbol for them is stars. Mm. uh, Some of them wander off in the darkness forever. These, These wandering stars, as they're called, they have one common characteristic they lack charity each one is quote sent to the place he deserved so what they were being tested for is simply their humanity their human feeling their as the scriptures call it charity in the book of daniel chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 
Could you read this? At that time shall Michael, Adam, mm -hmm. stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and call his posterity to the veil to be examined. The result, some shall be delivered to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We're going to be judged individually. Right. At the veil. Mm. Okay, we're, we're, we're talking about the temple. Right. We're going to be judged individually at the veil to see if we've gained the required knowledge to go through, right? The required right. knowledge through our faithfulness. Now, anciently, this sacred knowledge about the temple ceremony, about the endowment, anciently, this, this endowment knowledge uh, spread among the descendants of Adam, okay? Some of them shared it without proper authorization. So these temple ordinances were everywhere, and, uh, and we can still see them in outline in lots of the ceremonials of ancient cultures today. The Egyptians centered their whole lives on the temple. According to the Book of Abraham, the first pharaoh sought, quote, sought earnestly to imitate that order established by the fathers in the first generations in the days of the first patriarchal reign, even in the reign of Adam. So Pharaoh actually tried to copy the temple ordinances, but he wasn't authorized to do that. So his imitation order, right, evolved over time into an elaborate ceremony for equipping a candidate to pass into eternal life. That explains all the all the right. pyramids and all the right. tombs and everything the, in the tombs. The massive temples and so yes. forth. Yeah. Wow. And that's why in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is, is by the way, if, if you've ever seen the Book of the Dead, it's a scroll that is like 30 feet long. And I saw it. Um, you can go to the New York uh, to New York to the Metropolitan Museum of, on Fifth Avenue there. Yeah, I'm going to be in New York next week. Yeah, if you go, if you go to the Met, go to the Egyptian wing, and you'll see on the wall this scroll unrolled for 30 feet. Okay, wow. it's huge. It's essentially a, a guide to the temple. Now, in, in the Book of the Dead, the soul of a dead person goes through all of this, you know, great tribulation. And eventually he's presented in white robes before this cubicle canopy okay. with a veil. It's veiled. Mm -hmm. uh, veils the God who will judge him. Oh, wow. Okay? Now, the, standing by the, ca the, the candidate is another God who uh, weighs the candidate's heart on scales against a feather. <laughs> okay? Uh, so on the one hand is the on the one scale is the heart is your heart on the other side is your is a feather, and uh, a crocodile-headed god stands by to eat you if your heart doesn't balance. So the the heart represents you know your character what you what you are, and the feather represents truth and faithfulness. If that doesn't balance. The crocodile god will eat you. Well, um, once the candidate passes the test, though, um, if he does pass the test, he's admitted into the divine presence. Now, if that isn't the endowment, I don't know what is. Right? That's that's, that's the, the Egyptian endowment. Book yeah. of the Dead. Yeah. Now, if you've been to the temple, 
to our temple. You know exactly what the Egyptians were doing. You know what they were up to. And by the way, if you look at facsimile 3 in the book of Abraham, that's the scene that's depicted there. Okay. As the candidate being brought to the veil. Right, right. Okay. So even the weight of a feather can tilt the scales. And that's pretty light, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Lord says he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, not even a featherweight of allowance. So if the judge finds any variance in the scale, any variance at all, he withdraws his invitation to come through the veil, right? And to inherit his kingdom, these persons cannot be trusted with the power and the glory that is in store for those who can be trusted. So the destiny of the soul depends on the weight of the heart against the feather of truth. That's the Egyptian religion, and it is also our religion. Yeah. Okay? yeah. That our hearts have to be changed. Hmm. Um, and uh, the, uh, the Book of the Dead expressly warns against covetousness, which made the, the soul heavy with sin because it encouraged pettiness, jealousy, self-pity, and especially ingratitude. And these sins made impressions on the soul. And that weighed down the, the heart, right? Weighs down the heart. And makes it impossible for you to pass through the veil and find paradise. I wouldn't want my heart to be weighed against a feather. <laughs> Who can live up to that standard? Yeah, really, nobody can, of course. That's why Alma says this. There must be an atonement made, or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. Nothing can save us but an infinite and eternal sacrifice. Alma 34. Uh, And that sacrifice atones for every violation of eternal law. And that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, Yay, infinite and eternal. Remember, infinite means without end. So no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you are, if you repent, the atonement covers it. And there's no way to get to the end of the atonement. It's infinite. Because of his atonement, Jesus can extend his arms of mercy to all who repent. And that is what the veil ceremony symbolizes. That's true worship. Wow. Now, according to Doctrine and Covenants 138.59, after they are washed clean, they shall receive a reward according to their works. Or in chapter 20 of Revelation. Uh, three trumpets call forth three categories of resurrected beings. Three categories. In the parable of the sower, that's in uh, Matthew 13, Jesus talked about three kinds of works or three levels of works. The redeemed soul is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now that's three, three levels, right? Mm -hmm. And that's in uh, verse 23 of Matthew. So they, they knew in the New Testament, they knew there were three levels of, of reward. Mm Mm-hmm. There's an early Christian named Papias, and he wrote this. The three levels of fruitfulness corresponded to three heavens or glories. Quote, those who are worthy of an abode in heaven shall go there. Others shall enjoy the delights of paradise. 
and others shall possess the splendor of the city, the new Jerusalem. Now, what that means, I don't know exactly, but they, I quote that to demonstrate that they knew there were three kinds of reward. Mm-hmm. The more fruit we bear, the greater the reward. But the quality of our efforts also matters. The quality of our efforts matters. It's not just just the fruit we bear. Everyone who has Christ as their foundation is saved according to the grace of God, even, even if their works produce different kinds of fruit, right? Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, Paul says something really interesting here. He says, Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, right? The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So our efforts differ, right? Just as gold and precious stones and wood and hay and stubble differ from each other. So will it be in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. Joseph Smith said this. Paul ascended into the third heavens. And he could understand the three principal rounds of Jacob's ladder, the telestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial glories or kingdoms, where Paul saw and heard things which were not lawful for him to utter. Why wasn't it lawful? Because it was confidential. It was temple stuff. and Paul wasn't allowed to talk about it in public. While Paul was, was obliged to conceal his higher knowledge, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon got to share it openly. They openly shared uh, a vision of the glories, and that's in Doctrine and Covenants 76, right? So in our next episode, we will see what is in store for those people in the third heaven. That's very exciting. Thank you for your time.